Do you remember what markets usually do in September? History says it's the worst month of the year when storm clouds gather, the wind whistles with fear, when companies pare back their earnings targets and strategists get bearish in their market forecasts. Will this fall bring us more of the same? We're at record highs. It's getting hard to explain. Should we be fully invested? Does the Fed have our back? The economy feels shaky. No one wants to attack. This is a time for strategy. Get in our money mode, because every investor needs their own code. When to buy, when to sell, and how to assess. The things we'll hear on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. It's a shortened trading week here in the U.S., and we've said goodbye to summer. But not before last week's August jobs report reminded us that the economic recovery has hit some turbulence. Only 235,000 jobs were added to U.S. payrolls last month. That was far fewer than expected. About 76% of the jobs lost in the pandemic have been recovered, but there are still more than 5 million people out of work, even though there are a lot of jobs available. That puts the focus back on the Federal Reserve and its tapering plans of those $120 billion worth of monthly bond purchases. That quantitative easing and the holding of interest rates at around 0% have been laying the safety net under the U.S. and European stock markets since last summer. Those markets continue to dance around record highs even as their economic recoveries stumble. It's a lot to process for the individual investor trying to make some sense of things, so we're bringing our good friend Kenny Paul Carey back in for some good old-fashioned common sense, and we need a new recipe from Kenny's kitchen for the turning of the season. Kenny, August job gains were so much lower than we expected going in. Obviously, this brings a lot into question in terms of how much the Fed will continue to support the capital markets, the health of the U.S. labor economy, the health of the U.S. economy overall. What are your reactions and what do you think this means going forward for investors? Listen, I think it puts the Fed in a very, very interesting place because on the one hand, he's been holding, he and the Fed, Jay Powell and the Fed have been holding off starting the tapering or starting to reduce the stimulus because they've been waiting, waiting for the job market, waiting for the economy to recover, waiting, waiting, waiting. And that's what they keep telling us every month is that they're just waiting and that we're there, we're making progress, but we're not there yet. And so at the August Jackson Hole, he made it sound very clear that we were there and that they were starting this conversation and that we should expect the taping was going to start, you know, probably, no, I think, November, December, which I thought was was exactly what the market was thinking. Now we get this horrendous jobs report on Friday, which is a fraction of what they said it was going to be. They were expecting, you know, 750. We got 235 or something. Well, well below. And so now it puts Jay Powell in the Fed in this position saying, well, OK, we can still taper. How can you taper? How can you justify tapering now on this, quote unquote, horrendous job report? So I think what it does is it sets Powell up, it gives him cover to say, look, we're, we are making progress and we are moving along, but we're not there yet. And they're going to be able to push out another couple of months. So I don't think it now starts until 2022. Right. I was very much an advocate that it was going to be in November, December of 2021. But I don't think it's going to be there anymore after today's report. So you have this support, which has underlied the one record after the other for the S&P 500 and now the NASDAQ. The stock market's been churning higher. We know the stock market and the economy are disconnected, but they do react to one another. The Fed is always adamant that its job is not to support the capital markets. It doesn't really consider the stock market. We know that it does, but you can't deny the fact that this Fed support, this safety net of this $120 billion in monthly bond buying, plus these interest rates that are down near 0%, that has helped push investors into the stock market in search of returns because there's nowhere else to get them, Kenny. Exactly. No, you're exactly right. And that's going to continue to be the problem. 
So as, as much as the Fed says that they don't support the market or they're not there to make sure the market goes higher, in fact, that's exactly what has happened. Because where are investors supposed to go? Rates are zero. You can't earn any money, put your money in the bank or in a CD. You just can't. You can't keep up with inflation, right? Because even if you're earning, even if you're earning in treasuries 1.3%, but inflation's running at 5%, you're negative. And so therefore, it's a problem for the Fed. And so as much as he said he doesn't want to support it, and he's not there to make sure the markets go up. That's exactly what's happening. And I think that's what it, what's going to continue to happen. And you know what's very interesting is that a week and a half ago, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, they all raised their year-end targets, right? They all raised it. Goldman's at 4,700 now. Wells Fargo, I think, is 4,650. It's all very interesting because the only way I saw that happening was if they kept, if they did not do a taper and they kept stimulating. So it was almost as if, you know, you want to look back and go, hmm, did they know something we didn't know? Because I think that's exactly now what's going to happen. I had 4,400 as my target uh, on the S&P. Clearly, we're through that. But I actually thought if we got a 10% correction, and then we rallied into year end. Forty four hundred would be right, but you know, even if we get a correction, even if it starts to want to pull back, if the Fed doesn't do anything, you're going to have these buy the dip guys that come right in as they have. We're down two or three percent, and suddenly, you know, all the buy the dippers come in. And I think that, in fact, is what you're going to see now through the end of the year. Kenny, as you know, we haven't seen a 5% move down in the markets. We haven't seen a correction in nine, 10 months right now. And it seems like every time there is some volatility, every time there's some selling, the next day, even before the market opens, the dip buyers come back in because, as we've said, there's nowhere else to go. Money's like water. It needs someplace to go. And usually that's higher in the stock market. It's been the only game in town. For individual investors out there, Kenny, so many of our listeners who are a lot of them are index investors or ETF investors, some are stock pickers, but it's been an easy ride just sitting back and watching this happen, even though your heart rate may go up a little bit. Should index investors and just casual investors say, there's nothing we can do here. We just got to keep up with our investing strategy month after month. Any advice you might give them right now? No. So here's what I would say. If you're talking about your investors, I'm assuming the bulkier investors are long-term investors and not day trader types, right? Because those are two very different conversations. Absolutely. But to the long-term investor, I would say absolutely, A, don't panic. And B, stick to your plan, continue putting more money to work. But what I would say is that just be careful how you're weighted. Keep your eyes on what's become overweighted based on how stock prices have moved, and then balance that out with putting money in sectors or stocks that are falling behind in terms of their weight, right? But they got to be good, solid names. Don't start, I'm not talking about the meme stocks and all that, but I'm talking about, you know, financials. I'm talking about energy. I'm talking, even utilities. If you see what's happened to utilities, and utilities have skyrocketed lately, look at the chart, it's straight up. Because what utilities is telling you is they don't think rates are going up. They don't think that, that they think the Fed is going to continue to pump and rates are not going up. And so therefore, uh, money has moved into utilities, partly because they're boring and they're not sexy at all. They're boring, yet they offer a lot of stability and they're decent dividend payers. Yeah, a lot of defense when you look at utilities and you look at some of those other sectors. But you got to also look at those tech, big techs. They've also kind of been rallying. We've seen some 52-week highs for some of the big names, but those have also become sort of defensive stocks, right? They have, they have become, and look, as long as the Fed stays low for longer, then the growth names are going to continue to outperform. Great point. Great point. Love your perspective. And if you think I'm letting you get out of here without giving us a recipe for the fall, Kenny, you have another thing coming. We're in September, starting to cool down a little bit here north of Florida where you are. What should we be cooking for that September going into October? I got uh, a cool- great late September recipe when the weather's, you know, it's beautiful during the day and it's just a little bit 
starts to get a little bit chilly at night. And it's a beef short rib recipe. And I always love this time of year to make it, even down here in Florida, you know, I mean, it's, it's good no matter where you have it, but it's relatively simple to make. It takes time to cook it, but to put it all together and then you just leave it in the oven and you let it cook for four hours, four and a half hours. The longer you let it cook, actually, the better it gets is the meat just falls off the bone. So you're going to need short ribs, beef short ribs, salt and pepper. You need chopped onions, celery, and carrots. You need five or six cloves of crushed garlic. You need a can of beef broth. You need a can of tomato paste, not tomatoes, but tomato paste. And you need about a third of a bottle of your favorite red wine, both to put in the recipe as well as to drink. But we can get to that in a minute, right? So uh, you want to start with your ribs, right? So you want to take them, you want to season them with salt and pepper. That's it. Just get them seasoned, put them aside. In a big, deep frying pan, put some olive oil, go around, heat the olive oil up, get it nice and hot, sear the, the ribs, right? So you put it in there, you hear them sizzle, brown them on all sides so they get like a little bit crusty on them, right? After that, put them into a big baking dish. I, I use a big aluminum deep baking dish and I lie them up on their side. I don't put them flat. I put them up on their side. I lay them all out. Once you do that, take all your fresh vegetables. So you've taken your onions, your celery, your carrots, which you've all chopped and you want, and the garlic, and you want to just put it all on top of the, put it in the baking pan, but just cover the meat with those vegetables. Don't do anything with them. You haven't cooked them. They're raw. Just put them right on top of the meat. And now go back to your uh, saute pan that you browned, that you browned the meat in. Now the oil is still in there. The flavor of the beef is still in there. So leave that. Now you want to add the can of beef broth the can of tomato paste, and about a quarter to a third of a bottle of red wine. Now, it depends, again, on how many ribs you're making. If you're only making a half a dozen ribs, you're not going to use that much wine. But if you've got a lot of ribs, you're going to use anywhere between a quarter and a third. Bring it to a boil. Let the alcohol from the wine burn away a little bit. Mix it up so that the tomato paste actually melts into the liquid. Once it's done that, now take the whole thing and just pour it out all over into the baking dish just cover the ribs and the vegetables with the, with the wine. Now, you don't want it to be completely submerged. You want it to probably come about halfway up the ribs, right? Because what's going to happen is as it cooks, the ribs are going to create their own juice on top of it. The vegetables are going to start to melt and they'll create their own juice. So in fact, when you look at it four and a half hours later, it's going to be full right to the top of the juice because everything was going to come together. Anyway, so do all that. You're going to put it in the oven. You're going to cover it really tight with tinfoil. And you're going to put it in your oven, uh, 300 and leave it in there at 325 degrees. You're going to leave it in there for four and a half hours. Just once you do all this, just put it in the oven and let it cook. Right, and then work on that wine, take a nap and come back to it, right? Absolutely. And like I said, the longer you let it cook, the, they just get softer and softer and softer. The meat falls right off the bone. But when you, when you come back to check it four and a half hours later, when you pull it out and unwrap it, you, first of all, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna smell. It's going to smell the whole kitchen delicious. But there's going to be a lot of liquid in there. So just be careful when you go to move it. But here's how you should present it. Take the ribs out. Now you're going to have a lot of juice. Plus, you're going to have all those vegetables. The way I do it is I'll puree a bunch of vegetables and I'll pour that on the, on the serving platter first, almost as a bed. And then I'll take the ribs and I'll line them up on the side, right down the center of the plate on top of the pureed vegetables. And then if I made, like I would make rice with this dish, I'd make like a garlic herb rice and, I'd, and I'll put the rice all around the perimeter of the dish. So you serve it, you've served everything in the center of the table, kind of family style. It looks great. The ribs are outstanding. Don't throw the juice away because you put some extra juice on the table for people to use. It's really, really good, and it's a great fall recipe. Right, and that meat's just falling off the bone at that point. What are we drinking with that? So I would cook and drink with the Brunello di Montalcino because it's like velvet, 
and it's robust. And this is a dish that really calls for a, a, a nice, robust wine. You don't want to drink like a Chianti or a Pinot, a Pinot Noir because it's, it's not robust enough, right? So I'll, I love Brunello di Montalcino. That's what I'll cook it with, and that's what I'll drink. Oh, that is perfect, and I'm getting that going as soon as I can. Kenny Paul Carey, thanks for the insight. Folks, follow Kenny on Instagram. Follow him on Twitter. He puts out his perspective every morning along with the recipe, so you don't have to just get it here. You're a great follow and a great educator for investors, Kenny. So good to have you back on The Express. Thank you. Thanks, Caleb. Always a pleasure. Let's get set up for the week ahead. September started off looking a lot like August for U.S. equity investors as the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 topped new record highs several times last week. Defensive sectors and tech stocks led the gains just like they did in August, while recovery stocks lagged. On Tuesday, we'll get a report on unemployment in the Eurozone. As of July, unemployment across the EU averaged 7.6%, down from 7.8% in June. The spread of the Delta variant led to economic and travel restrictions across the continent, which may have had a big impact on hiring in August, traditionally a key month for tourism. We'll see if that impacted hiring in the EU as it did in the U.S., in August. On Wednesday, the Bank of Canada will meet on monetary policy and interest rates. The bank has kept its target rate at 0.25% amid the crisis, and economists are not expecting that to change in the upcoming meeting. Those low rates have contributed to what many people are calling a bubble in Canada's housing market. The bank has begun tapering its monthly bond purchases ahead of other major central banks, and we'll see if it plans to continue slowing its asset purchases given some softness in the economy up north. On Wednesday, the U.S. Labor Department will release the JOLTS report, also known as the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey for July. In June, the number of available positions rose to 10.1 million during the month from an upwardly revised 9.5 million in May, which showed more Americans voluntarily leaving the labor force and switching jobs. Given the weak August non-farm payrolls report out last week, expect to see another high number in July. On Friday, we'll get the U.S. Core Producer Price Index for August. Commodity prices for goods like steel, copper, and lumber have receded from their highs from a few months ago, but supply chain bottlenecks are still causing delays in the shipping of raw materials. That has kept prices elevated, and we should expect that to play out in Friday's PPI release. We'll be keeping an eye on that infrastructure bill that is bouncing around Capitol Hill now that lawmakers are back at work. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. That schoolhouse rock never gets old. Hurricane Ida left about $18 billion worth of damage in its wake and proved yet again how vulnerable the nation's infrastructure is to natural disasters and climate change. This will also be the first week without those $300 a week of enhanced pandemic unemployment benefits for the 26 states that were still issuing them. States issued $794 billion in combined state and federal unemployment benefits from March 2020 through July 2021, according to the Labor Department. That included weekly bonus payments, which were raised by $600 a week and then lowered to $300 a week, as well as unemployment insurance and assistance for gig workers. The corporate calendar remains light, but IPO season is about to start ramping up again. 90 to 100 companies are expected to go public in the U.S. over the next four months, and 375 companies have already done so in 2021, raising some $125 billion. That's an all-time record. Here's a brief list of several high-profile companies that could be on the IPO runway this fall. 
Warby Parker, the eyeglass retailer, Fresh Market, the fresh food grocer, Authentic Brands, the brand licensor, Allbirds, the maker of sustainable footwear, Instacart, the grocery delivery company, Chobani, the Greek yogurt maker, Sweetgreen, the salad fast casual restaurant, Flipkart, India's e-commerce giant, and Impossible Foods, the plant-based food company. Have you tried those burgers? Not bad. And keep your eyes on Bitcoin this week. On Tuesday, El Salvador becomes the first country to legalize Bitcoin as legal tender alongside the U.S. dollar. The country will require businesses to accept the cryptocurrency as a form of payment. This is despite a recent survey of El Salvadorians, which showed that three quarters were skeptical of the plan and almost half knew nothing about Bitcoin. What could go wrong? We hear a lot of talk about financial literacy, about how important it is, about how critical it is to teach kids about money, but there's not a lot of people actually making it happen on the ground in the communities that need it most. Courtney Hale is making it happen, and he's been at it for years. He's the founder of Super Money Kids, a company that produces educational programming to teach young children about money at its most fundamental levels. Courtney is also known as the chief hope dealer for Super Money Kids, and he's our special guest on the Investopedia Express this week. Thanks so much for being with us, Courtney. Good to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell us about Super Money Kids and your inspiration for coming up with it. Super Money Kids, it's the result of a lot of different experiences in my personal life. I grew up in a household that had its fair share of money challenges that created a ton of obstacles for my family and I. I also worked in the financial services industry and was often frustrated that there was nobody preparing us to manage our money throughout the time that, that we were youth. And then the, the, the third personal story is a really, really close one. I have a daughter that's six now. And at a very early age, she needed some instruction and guidance around money, resources, plans, needs and wants. And kind of the first version of the Super Money Kid Bank came from her. And um, all those things together led to what we now know as Super Money Kids. Yeah, she's special. She's going to be a star. So getting her started on those early lessons is definitely going to be essential. But the stats are out there. You cite them on your website, but everybody knows, you know, the average college debt for for people coming out of college is $32,000. If you're lucky to go to college, that's about 400 bucks a month in payments. But even more, 60% of employees experience financial stress. Americans, 75% say it's the number one source of stress. 77% are living paycheck to paycheck. In your hometown of Nashville, 73% of students living in poverty. That's a disgrace. But financial literacy could sort of open up the doors to at least teaching people about money before they fall into these debt problems. Is that something you've seen in your community? Absolutely. And it's literally as simple as just starting the conversation. It's being able to overcome our own insecurities as adults. Many times we want to be private or we're ashamed of mistakes that we've made, or we feel that we're just inadequate to teach a topic that may be beyond maybe our educational level or our profession. None of that matters. The thing that matters is that we are pouring into our next generation so that they can create an amazing world for themselves so they can pursue their dreams and ambitions so that they can be great people and and do and create great things. Like that's what matters. It's amazing that financial literacy is like the only topic to where an adult 
will be like, hey, I'm not really that good at it or I don't really know a lot about it. So I'm just not even going to teach my kid. We don't do like when our kids go to school, we're not like, hey, I wasn't really good at math either. So I'm not even going to push you to do good at math. We don't do that about anything else. We don't we never say, hey, I was a little dirty kid. And because I was a little dirty kid, I'm not going to teach my kid good hygiene. We don't do that about anything else except for money. And, and so time is up for that. And you said it. People don't like talking about their personal finances. They don't like talking about their health. The two most important things that are probably cause us financial stress and, and stress in life, nobody likes talking about those things and we don't teach them early enough. So tell us about some of the resources you provide and who you're targeting specifically with the resources and, and also some of the products on your site. Sure. So Super Money Kids is a brand that we want to be an inspirational or tool around financial literacy. Right now, there are two things that we're doing primarily in that we've created the Super Money Bank, which is behind me. The Super Money Bank has three parts that align with what we call our money habits. And our three money habits are saving, spending, and sharing. We also have a digital curriculum built around the three money habits and the super money bank. That's six lessons. They're about 30 to 35 minutes each. And uh, it kicks off with a scavenger hunt that helps you get familiar with your bank. We have a lesson on each of the money habits, saving, spending, and sharing. We have an earn lesson that's an introduction to entrepreneurship. In the last lesson, students create a goal for saving and a way to earn money. Our program is designed for youth organizations, kids that are in elementary through about sixth grade. And we are primarily targeting Title I schools and schools in traditionally underserved communities. Although we work with, we'll work with any school that has a commitment to improving the financial literacy of youth. So those are just those core fundamentals, saving, spending, and the sharing part. So important because that's something kids need to learn at a young age. That's something adults need to learn at an older age. But you get those three fundamentals down, you start to understand how money actually works. And I think it's so valuable what you're doing and what you're providing for folks, but also bringing it back to the conversations that educators and parents need to have with kids, that simple conversation of, What do your parents do for work? How does the money get made? How do we pay our bills? How do we afford to pay for the car or pay for the cable service? Those are core to education. And I know you help people understand that so they can explain that to their kids too as well, right? Yeah. You know, that's the beauty of Super Money Kids is it's age appropriate. And it's relatable, like it's not intimidating. It's it's fun. Like we we were intentional with the colors and the characters because we didn't want it to be boring. And that's what our brand is. It's fun. It's easy, even for teachers that teach it. You know, our digital curriculum. I mean, you log in and you hit play. All right. That's all you do. And kids follow along in their in their workbooks. Uh, but we wanted it to be simple. And use simple terminology. We help out with the terminology. We have on the back of the banks, we have like a list of vocab words and terms that are easy for adults to understand and definitely easy for kids to understand as well. We want families and schools to know that you can do this. And we're here to help 
the entire way. That empowerment is such a big part of it, but also breaking through the jargon. That's why Investopedia has been around for 22, 23 years, because we, we try to explain things. And I hope that we can do some work together with you because we're so inspired by what you're doing and who you're targeting. We really believe financial literacy's time has come. It should have come a long time ago. The best day to start learning was yesterday. The next best day is today. So love what you're doing there. Courtney, what's your five-year dream for Smart Money Kids? And what do we need to do to help you get there? Five years, man, we will definitely have the Super Money Kids book series launched by then, which is our our next project to expand the Super Money Kids brand. We're also in the creative space around a Super Money animation. Five years, that will absolutely be done. Um, But most importantly, you know, our, our mission is to make financial education accessible. We set a goal this year to donate 5,000 of our Super Money Kid banks and to make financial education accessible for those students as well. In five years, that number will be over 100,000. And so we're really looking forward to be the brand that our country recognizes as being most committed and most impactful in terms of financial literacy. And we hope to have some amazing corporate partners, financial partners to help us do that. Who inspired you, Courtney? Who are your financial or education heroes? What got you into this? I don't know if anybody's ever asked me before. So when I think about my inspiration, you know, it doesn't necessarily come in terms of like a mentor or, or somebody that's done this work before me. You know, my inspirations are, are really personal. My wife who passed last May in May 2020 is an inspiration for me and the way that she loved and cared for others and the way that she sacrificed so much for myself and for my daughter. My daughter is an inspiration. It's because of, of her that this work has, you know, this brand even exists. It's to think about the hope and opportunity that I want her to have access to that motivates me to continue going. Also think about my mom, my grandma, and my aunts who made so many sacrifices to ensure that I had access to every development opportunity that a kid could have access to. They went overboard to protect me from the streets of North Nashville. And they're a very spiritual group as well. So they've sent up a lot of prayers for your boy too. But those are my inspirations to do the work that I do. That's so beautiful. And they're and so close to your heart. And we know uh, your wife, Tia, was such a big part of this. And she would be so proud probably to see what you've, what you've developed and what you and your daughter have pushed and, and what it's going to be in five years. So super inspiring story. How do folks learn more about Super Money Kids and donate or participate in what you're doing? Where do you want them to go? Yes, go to our website first, supermoneykids.co. That's supermoneykids.co. You can join our email list. Please join our email list. Uh, There's just some great content that we share through email, some great conversations. I tell my digital marketing team, I'm like, yeah, I'm over like newsletters. Let's just connect with people and talk to them. And so I hadn't completely won that battle yet. But there's still a lot of conversations that we're doing through our email list. We do some really creative things through our social media as well. So follow us on Instagram and Facebook 
at supermoneykidsco. Don't discount those emails. I get them and I share them with my teenage daughters, 15 and 17. They're super into them. They're great conversation starters, but there's so much rich information on Super Money Kids through your platforms, through that newsletter, and really love what you're doing. Courtney Hale with Super Money Kids, the chief hope dealer. So good to have you on the Investopedia Express. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate you having me. It's terminology time, time for the educated investor to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Spencer in Los Angeles, California. Spencer suggests hard money lending for this week's term, and we like that suggestion given the rise in real estate prices lately. According to my favorite website, a hard money loan is a type of loan that is secured by real property. Hard money loans are considered loans of last resort or short-term bridge loans. These loans are primarily used in real estate transactions with the lender generally being individuals or companies and not banks. A hard money loan is usually taken out for a short duration and it's a way to raise money quickly but at a higher cost and a lower LTV or loan-to-value ratio. Because hard money loans rely on collateral rather than the financial position of the applicant, the funding time is shorter. Terms of hard money loans can be negotiated between the lender and the borrower and these loans typically use property as collateral. Default by the borrower can still result in a profitable transaction for the lender through the collecting of the collateral. Good suggestion, Spencer. You'll be getting your Investopedia sock game on, and we'd like to see you rocking those on the boardwalk on Venice Beach while you get some fish tacos. You send us that pic on Instagram, and we'll send you an Investopedia Express hoodie. We're going to let the late, great actor Michael K. Williams take us out this week. Williams died recently at the way-too-young age of 54, but his performances in TV shows like Boardwalk Empire and as Omar Little in The Wire will live on forever. Oh, in the game, yo. <laughs> All in the game. <laughs> and in that game, everyone has to have a code. Rest in power, Michael K. Williams. And we'll talk to you again a little further on down the line.